So we are getting really close to wrapping up Mark's gospel, and it's the first time I've ever attempted a sermon series as long as this. And uh, it's been a cool experience for me as a preacher, and I am so thankful for your kindness and generosity in bearing with me all these many months. Uh, I, I trust that like you, um, like me, you've gotten to know Mark's gospel maybe more deeply than you did before. And along the way, I've really developed an affection for Mark's gospel. I know I love John's gospel. I'm reading through John's gospel in my quiet time right now, and it's so good. But there's something about Mark's gospel that really I connect with. And I think part of it is that Mark tells the story at a fast pace. One of his favorite words is immediately. And so Mark just sort of barrels through the details of Jesus' life, helping us to understand who he was as the Christ, the Son of God. Uh, I also like the different theological emphases Mark has throughout the gospel. I mean, it starts out at the beginning when Jesus says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. And like in every chapter and on every page, Mark is just hammering away at the drum that is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is real and it is made present in the person of Jesus. And as he comes in all his authority, teaching and healing and casting out demons, the kingdom of God is among us. I love to see that because the Jesus of the gospel is the Jesus who is alive and well today and wants to be active in my life. And that means he's ready to do exactly for me what he did for the people in this book. I love Mark's emphasis on suffering. I, I don't know, somewhere deep in my soul, I resonate with that theme. Maybe uh, it's just I like to play the victim or something, but I, I really appreciate all of Mark's time spent on the need to be faithful through suffering. And I love the honesty with which he looks at the disciples. Though they had an upfront seat to Jesus, and got to see every word he spoke and every miracle he performed, they were so stubborn and slow to understand. And yet Jesus was so patient and gave them chance after chance and bore with them despite their failings. And I need that. Man, I need Jesus to be patient with me because I'm stubborn and so often miss what he's trying to do around me. And I imagine that the first readers of Mark's gospel heard all those things and immediately connected with them as well. I mean, they might have lived a long time ago in a place far, far away, but they were people too, and they dealt with the same kind of things that you and I deal with. In fact, scholars tell us that the first readers of Mark's gospel were Christians living in Rome in the mid-first century A.D., and the world around them was rapidly changing. They were already starting to experience some ostracization from their culture. Their friends down the street were looking at them with sideway glances, skeptical about the impact they were going to have on the Roman world. They were already starting to experience some of the first rumblings of official state-sanctioned persecution by the mad emperor Nero, who's eventually going to blame the burning of Rome on the Christians. And I can't imagine what they must have felt when reading through Mark's gospel, the preacher taking two or three or four years to get through it, I don't know. They come to this passage and they see their fearless leader, the Apostle Peter, who church tradition tells us had a leading hand in the church in Rome, crumble under the same kind of pressure they must have felt. Here was his chance. And he failed miserably. And I love that Mark just tells us like it is. 
doesn't try to cover up the warts and blemishes. He just says, this is Peter in his most massive failure. Take a good long look, folks. And there's something encouraging about that to me because I actually think that to explain Peter's behavior and to explain Pilate's reaction, you only need to look for one cause. There are men totally different, different backgrounds, different life trajectories, and yet one thing determined both of their reactions to Jesus. And it's what the Bible calls the fear of man. And I bet you struggle with it too. And so this morning, I want to think with you about the fear of man and how it can impact our relationship with Christ and our posture towards the world around us. And I really am praying that you'd get set free, that I'd get set free from my opinion of people. Because here's what I'm convinced of. If you live in the fear of man, you're always going to cater to the crowds. But if you will rely, if you will build your life on, if you will drive your state deep into the ground of God's grace, you'll be willing to stand with Christ whatever the cost. And so will you work through this passage with me and let God show us what that means? Whether you will or not, we're doing it. So you could have said yes there. That's a rhetorical device to make sure you're totally glued into where we're going in this sermon. And I'm just going to assume for the sake of argument, that you are. Okay, so what is the fear of man? I think we should define our terms, right? Fear of man is a common condition of our brokenness, something everybody knows about. The Bible talks about the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 1.7, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord means to know who God is, to know what God does and to adjust your life accordingly. To know that God is your creator, that he is the author and sustainer of life, that he has written down every day you're going to live before there ever was a one, that he's all-powerful, and that he's everywhere all at once. And when you get that fact about God lodged deep in your soul, you'll live your life accordingly. You'll live in the fear of the Lord. You'll obey him. You'll reverence him you'll worship him. And so the fear of the Lord is something you definitely want. It's the beginning of wisdom. It's going to make your life so good. But on the other hand, there's this thing the Bible calls the fear of man. Proverbs 29, 25 says, the fear of man is a snare. It's going to trap you by the foot and hang on to you so that you can't get loose. Ed Welch wrote this book called When People Are Big and God Is Small. And he says that the fear of man means exchanging God's place with people. It means taking the people in our lives and putting them in the place that God deserves. I define the fear of man like this. I think it's a posture of our heart. It's an attitude, an internal disposition that leads us to adjust our lives, adjust our behavior to achieve the favorable positive response from the people around us or to avoid a negative response from the people around us. We're going to think about the people in our lives and determine our behavior based on how they're going to react. 
We want them to like us, and so we adjust our behavior accordingly. We don't want them to look down on us, so we adjust our behavior accordingly. In fact, Ed Welch in his book, and I'd highly recommend you read it, identifies three reasons why we fear people. He says, number one, we all know deep down in our guts that people can expose us and humiliate us. You ever dreamed you were in front of your high school wearing very little clothing? It's, it happens. We all have these dreams that we're exposed and humiliated. He says, number two, that we're afraid people are going to ridicule us and reject us. He says we're afraid of people because we know deep down they could harm us. And so this fear of man shows up in our lives in all kinds of places. It shows up in telling people what we think they want to hear. We sometimes call those things white lies. When your wife asks you, do I look good in this outfit? And you think, I want, a, I want a good response here. I don't want to lose the favorable relationship I have. And you so it's when you don't tell your husband that he's going bald, even though you see it, okay? You don't want to bring it. You don't want to knock him down, okay? White lies. And then, it, of course, it's a little more insidious. It explains our social butterfly or social chameleon behaviors. You ever known anybody like this? That whatever group they were in, they adjusted themselves to blend in. You never knew who they really were, because it seemed like whoever they were around, they're always different. It explains the feelings we feel of shame and insecurity and low self-esteem and poor image. It explains why we're so manipulative and conniving, calculating, that we think through the things we're going to say and do, even down to the clothes we're going to wear, because we know that people can expose us and humiliate us. If they only knew who I was, they'd never like me. If they only knew who I really was, everybody would laugh at me. If they knew who I really was, they'd push me away and isolate me. You ever experience any of that? I'm telling you, the fear of man is a common condition of our brokenness. And it, it ruins lives, it ruins marriages, it's terrible. And it's particularly deadly when it comes to our relationship with Jesus because fear of man is incompatible with faithful Christian living. You're supposed to fear the Lord, not people. And if you base your life decisions on what other people are going to think about you, you'll make the same kind of decisions that Peter and Pilate made. It's incompatible. See, the fear of man turns disciples into deniers of Christ. Think about this in the life of Peter. We saw it in verses 66 to 72, where Peter denied Jesus three times. Now, if you were with us the past few weeks, you know that Jesus predicted this was going to happen. Right after his last supper with the disciples, he went out to the mountain of uh, olives in the garden of Gethsemane, and he told them, hey, listen, guys, you're all gonna fall away from me so that it'll be fulfilled, that the shepherd might be stricken and the sheep be scattered. He predicted all his disciples were going to abandon him, and Peter said, no, Lord, not me. Even if everybody else deserts you, I'm gonna stand with you, even if it costs me my life. And Jesus said to him, well, that's really sweet of you to say, but before the rooster crows twice tonight, you're gonna deny me three times. And Peter went on saying, no, no, Lord, not me. But here in verses 66 to 72, 
Mark records for us the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy. It happened just like Jesus said it was. While Jesus was inside the high priest's house, being interrogated by the Sanhedrin and falsely accused, Peter was out there in the courtyard trying to blend in with the crowd, trying to keep his head low. I know you saw it before, but let's walk back through it and see it again. Verse 66, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself by the fire, she said, you were with Jesus. You were with him. She'd apparently seen Peter hanging out with Jesus before. Maybe during the week they were in Jerusalem. Maybe that night. But he denied it, verse 68, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. Peter, feeling a little exposed on the verge of humiliation, decides a change of scenery is in order. And so he gets up from around the fire and goes out to the porch. But the little girl follows him out there. And this time she brings the crowd into the picture. Hey, everybody, look. It's one of those guys that was with the Nazarene. And Peter again says, hey, I don't know what you're talking about. And then the crowd, I guess, hearing Peter go on and on, denying that he was one of Jesus' disciples, they pick up on his Galilean accent, uh, which they said the Judean Jews could tell the Galilean Jews apart because they had a coarse accent. And so, you know, it's like the Yankee and the Northern, uh, the Yankee and the Southerner, they, they know where they're from. And they're like, well, you must be one of them because you're a Galilean too, Galilean too. But verse 71, he began to curse and swear and say, I don't know this man you're talking about. Now, that's amazing. That's a startling reversal. A few hours before, Peter was swearing up and down to Jesus that he was never going to deny him. And now at the high priest's house, he's swearing up and down that he never knew him. That's crazy. How do you explain that? Except that for Peter, what people thought about him in that moment was his only concern. I like the way William Lane says it. He says that this language of denial implies a previous relationship of obedience and fidelity that has now been rejected. Peter denies Jesus. There was a time, yes, when I was willing to go with Jesus to the end. But I've rethought things here in this moment, and I decided it's not worth it to me anymore. I was faithful. Now I'm faithless. I was willing to stand with him. And now I'm going to deny him three times. And the crazy thing is he curses himself. Now, there's a Greek word, one of the strongest words in all the Bible. It's a verb, anathematize. And it means to call down the judgment of God on a person. And that's what Peter does to himself. He says, look, if I'm lying to you, God can send me to hell. And that's what the fear of man will do. It will turn the boldest, most faithful of disciple of Jesus somebody who doesn't think twice about denying him. Christians have always felt this pull. I'm sure the first Christians who read Mark's gospel knew what this was all about. They had been in situations where the very same question was put to them, are you a Christian? hundred years after Mark wrote the gospel, a Roman official named Pliny wrote a letter to the emperor Trajan. 
And plenty had been sent into modern-day Turkey to hunt out Christians and put them to death. And he relayed to the emperor his tactics. He said when he found a Christian, he would give them three opportunities to deny Christ. He'd say, are you a Christian? One. Are you a Christian? Two. Are you a Christian? Three. And if they refused to deny Christ, he'd put them to death. And this is what Pliny said to Trajan. Those who are really Christians cannot be made to curse Christ. Around the same time in Jerusalem, a Jewish rebel leader named Bar Kokhba led a rebellion against the Romans. And he rounded up Christians who were still living in Jerusalem and he gave them an option, cursed Christ or die. Peter sets the pace for other Christians who followed in his steps. We all have heard the stories of people put in similar positions. Cassie Bernal, Columbine High School, student walks into the library with a gun in his hand, puts it to her head. Are you a Christian? She says, yes, and he pulls a trigger. And in that moment, your fear of man or your fear of the Lord is made clear. Whose opinion do you really care about? And many people have decided it was worth their life to deny Jesus. Jesus knew this was going to happen. He told this parable back in Mark chapter 4 called the parable of the soils. He envisioned this farmer who had a bag full of seed and who was walking around his property scattering the seed indiscriminately. And as he did, it fell on all different types of soil. Some of the seed fell in thorny soil. And it grew up, but it eventually got choked out by the thorns and weeds. Some of the seed fell on rocky soil. And it came up quick and looked like it was going to be great. But because the soil wasn't of good quality, it wasn't able to bury its roots. And when the sun came out, it burned up. Some seed fell on the path and birds came and ate it. And some seed fell in good soil. And over time, it bore an abundant harvest. And Jesus warned his disciples that as they shared the gospel, there were going to be people who reacted to it like those soils. There will be some people who receive the gospel with joy, and it takes root in their life, and it grows up abundantly, bearing fruit for all the people around them. There are going to be some people who are like the seed cast on the path, and Satan was going to take the gospel out of their ears before it had a chance to take root. There are going to be some people who are like the soil with thorns and weeds, and the seed was going to take root, and it was going to grow up, but eventually it was going to be crowded out by the cares of life. He said some people were going to be like that rocky soil. And at first, they received the gospel with open arms, joyfully, he says, but as soon as persecution comes, they won't have root, and they'll fall away. I mean, I'm telling you, the fear of man is incompatible with faithful Christian living because it turns disciples into deniers of Christ. You start wondering what people think about you or how they're going to respond to you if they knew who you really were. This isn't a challenge just for Christians living in China or Iran or Somalia 
This is a very real danger for you and me. I could, I could imagine a conversation where it comes out at work or at school or maybe with some family members that you've started going to church consistently. And immediately they start assuming all kinds of things about you. They start lumping you in with all those kind of Christians, the people who go overboard and try to proselytize, right, and share the gospel and make converts. And you say, yeah, look, I believe in God, but I'm not doing all that. And it's the same kind of thing. To distance yourself from Jesus or to minimize his role in your life is to be afraid of what people think about you, and it's incompatible with faithful Christian living. But look, it's not just outright denials, because I'm looking around this room, and I believe better about y'all than that. I don't think any one of you would ever say that you don't believe in Jesus, that you deny knowing him. I don't know what y'all are talking about, swearing up and down. But I guarantee you this week, you've suffered from the second. Because fear of man doesn't just turn disciples into deniers. It keeps people who know the truth silent. And that's the case with Pilate. So the Sanhedrin go through this whole ordeal, this pre-dawn interrogation of Jesus where they find him guilty of the trumped-up charge of blasphemy. While the Sanhedrin had been given control by the Romans to determine their religious affairs and some criminal offenses, they didn't actually have the right to kill people, to exact capital punishment. They still had to rely on the Romans for that. And so as soon as they could, first thing in the morning, they end up at the Roman imperial official's palace to hand Jesus over to have the judgment enacted on him. This guy's Pilate. Pilate came to Jerusalem in AD 26 as the imperial official. History tells us Pilate was not a good guy. He hated the Jews and delighted in making their lives miserable. And so he had no reason to take the Sanhedrin, who were the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the nation, at their word. So he puts Jesus in a trial of his own. He's going to get to the bottom of this to see what the facts are about this man. Apparently, the Sanhedrin were wise enough to know that while blasphemy was punishable by the law of Moses, the Romans didn't care about that charge. And so they instead told Pilate that Jesus was claiming to be king and hoping that Pilate would convict him for treason. And so they deliver him over and Pilate starts this trial and he asks him right out of the gate, are you the king of the Jews? And my Bible says, it is as you say. But it's probably fair, given what we know about Jesus' reaction to the high priest earlier in the morning, that it'd be better to translate it like, if you say so. Like it's a non-committal answer. Like if you say so. You know, and, and Mark's story is truncated. I told you that. He's, he's into the fast pace, and so he just kind of skims over the details. John digs deeper, and in John 18, he records for us this conversation that Jesus has with Pilate. And they start talking about the nature of truth and the kind of kingdom that Jesus rules and reigns over. And, and Jesus tells him, look, are you the king of the Jews? Like, do I look like a king to you? Have you ever seen a king in handcuffs? But my kingdom's not of this world. And so Jesus makes this noncommittal answer, and Pilate starts to get the hint that Jesus is innocent, that whatever he's done, it's not worthy of death. 
But you saw how Pilate has no moral backbone. Right? He says in verse 12, or in verse 11, 10, he was aware that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. He saw through the whole thing, but was unwilling to stick his neck out there. And so he had this habit every year at Passover of releasing one of the Jewish prisoners to the people. And when he went about doing this, he thought, well, surely they're going to choose the guy called the king of the Jews. What people wouldn't want their king set free? But he didn't know that the chief priests had behind the scenes rallied the people around this Barabbas character. And when Pilate heard the people shouting for Barabbas, give us Barabbas. What do you want me to do with the king of the Jews? Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate saw the wind shifting. And being a wise man, he read the crowd. He said, hey, I'm not going to win with these people. If I don't get this situation under control, I might lose my position. I might find myself on the other end of Roman justice. And so knowing the truth about Jesus, that he was innocent, that he'd only been brought there because they were jealous of him, he washed his hands of the situation, kept his mouth shut, and went along with what the crowd asked him to do. And I think that that's probably where most of us struggle with the fear of man. It's not the outright denial of Christ that gets us. It's the silence. We're wise too. We can tell when the wind shifts in the break room, in the cafeteria at school, in the classroom, the dining room table when, hey, well, this religious talk is getting a little out of control here, and I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. I'm just going to duck and let it blow on by. We're afraid. You know, the Bible says that our silence on the things of God is just as bad as an outright denial. James 4.17 says, if a person knows what's right, but they fail to do it, for them it's sin. And so the conversation shifts onto topics that are not amenable to your Christian faith, and it's obvious you're in the minority here. That everybody's going one way, and if you spoke up, you're going to stick out like a sore thumb. You're going to be exposed. And if people know what you really think about these issues, how they react. Will they welcome you in open arms under the banner of tolerance? Or will they reject you and ridicule you? Maybe even harm you. Put a little note there in your file. So when HR comes up looking at people for promotion... You're not down with the cause. No, it works out best for people when you just keep your mouth shut and blend in, don't stick out. And yet, that's sinful. That is sinful before God. Jesus says in Matthew 10 that if anyone confesses me before men, I'll confess him before my Father who's in heaven. But if any person is ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of them before my Father who's in heaven. Fear of man's incompatible with faithful Christian living because it keeps people who know the truth silent. Whether we want to admit it or not, we've all been there, haven't we? 
It's a common condition of our brokenness and incompatible with Christian living. So what are we left to do? How do we go from this brokenness to being the people that Jesus has called us to be? I want you to know that the fear of man crumbles under the grace of God in Christ. We, we overcome the fear of man like we overcome anything in our walk with Jesus. We remind ourselves of what we know about God's love for us expressed in Christ because it tells us that Jesus forgives people who struggle with the fear of man. People, Jesus forgives people who struggle with the fear of man. I can prove it to you. John chapter 21 records an encounter that Jesus had after his re resurrection with Peter. Spent a night fishing. They bring in a bumper catch, like more, more fish than anybody had ever seen. And they sit down on the seashore and they eat a breakfast together and over a charcoal fire, Jesus talks with Peter. <laughs> and these are the words he says to him. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he'd said it to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things already. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Now, I love this story because it is a mirror image of Peter at the high priest's house. Simon, do you love me more than all these guys? I vaguely remember one night you telling me that if anybody would desert me, it would never be you. But everybody else would flee, but you'd stand with me till the end. Is that true? Do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord. And Jesus does know all things. He's not trying to figure out the truth. But he's, re he's rewinding the tape. Three times Peter denied him, and three times he got to look the master in the eye and tell him to his face, I love you. I love you. I love you. In that moment, Jesus restored Simon Peter to the relationship that he had lost. The feeling of shame and inadequacy he must have felt. Can you imagine it? To have denied your master three times and then see him in his flesh after his resurrection. I don't know how he would overcome the crushing weight of the guilt unless Jesus came to him, took the initiative, and forgave him. And that's exactly what he did. He gave him the opportunity to reassert his love for Jesus, and they were good. They were reconciled. He was forgiven. He was back on track. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, that's what Jesus wants to do for you. The Bible tells us that God loves you so much that while you were dead in your trespasses and sins, he sent his son Jesus for you. And at the end of his perfect life, when the crowd shouted, crucify him, and he offered himself up, he paid the penalty for every sin you'll ever commit even the fear of man, he knew when he was on the cross that Peter was denying him. He knew that we'd fail to speak up and we'd stay silent. He knew it all. 
And while we were yet enemies, he died for us. But he wants to forgive you of this. He wants to set you free from the burden of shame and guilt. Fear of man is not the final word for you or for me. Jesus is ready to forgive us of it. And so today, will you bring it to him? You need your own personal encounter with Jesus, just like Simon Peter had, where you are honest with him about your past and you reassert to him your love for him. Look, Lord, in the past, I've distanced myself from you. I've minimized your role in my life. I've not wanted people to know that I really believe in you, that I really wanna stand for you. But from this day forward, I love you. I'll do whatever you call me to do. Do that this morning. You're here for that reason. But Jesus doesn't just forgive us when we struggle with the fear of man. He also wants to strengthen those who struggle with the fear of man. And I'm sure Simon Peter wished his conversation with Jesus just ended at that last 10 my sheep, but it goes on. And in verse 18, Jesus tells him, truly, truly, I say to you that when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and they'll bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he'd spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Now listen to this. Jesus knew everything about Simon. He knew he loved him. He gave him the opportunity to reassert it three times. And he knew what kind of life Simon Peter was going to live from that day forward. He saw Peter, the house of Simon the Tanner in Joppa. And there'd be a knock on the door. Men sent from Cornelius, and Peter would go and preach the gospel to Cornelius and his household, and Cornelius would be saved. And the gospel would go to the Gentiles and start this worldwide global movement known as Christianity. Jesus knew that Peter would end up in Rome, and he'd pastor the church there. The very church who's reading Mark's gospel, Mark wrote Peter's recollections down for them and for us. And he knew that at the end of his life, Peter would be caught up in the persecution carried out by the Romans and he'd be carried away to his own death where tradition tells us he was crucified hanging upside down because he didn't find himself worthy to suffer the same kind of death that Jesus had suffered. Now, how do you go? Tell me this. How do you go from a massive failure in front of maybe 40 or 50 people at the high priest's house to standing in front of the whole world for Jesus? What enables a person to do that? What, what changes the trajectory of a person's life from being a denier to being a martyr? And it is the grace of God which strengthens you for every test you'll face. Peter knew it. He lived the rest of his life banking on God's grace at work in his life, helping him to succeed where in the past he failed, giving him strength where in the past he had been weak, helping him do exactly what Jesus had called him to do. And that's a testimony of every Christian. I love what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter six. He's going through this wonderful passage on the armor of God. 
He says, be strong and in, the, in the Lord and in the power of his might and put on the full armor of God. And he goes through this beautiful thing on the armor of God, which you, if you don't know, you should read it. It's wonderful. But at the very end of it, he says, and pray at all times in the spirit, keeping watch. In verse 19 of Ephesians 6, he says, and pray for me. Pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. You tell me the heroes of my faith, Peter's and Paul's and Jesus's, were afraid We're tempted to give up on Christ, just like me. They have to ask people to pray for them, to give them boldness, just like I do. You tell me they're relying on the strength of God, just like me, that there is nothing different than them, than you or me. The strength of God given to us by Christ is sufficient for everything we're going to face. I believe it with all my heart, church. Paul says at the end of 2 Timothy, the last letter he writes before his own death and martyrdom. At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be countered against them. But the Lord stood with me, and he strengthened me, so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished, and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Listen, sometimes you will stand alone. Nobody else is there. You are in the minority, and yet Christ will be your strength. You need to put it on your mirror. As you head out into the world tomorrow, facing those people you know you're going to face, the situations you know you're going to deal with. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. You need to write it in your heart. God hasn't given me a spirit of fear, but of power and of love, and a sound mind, and as God is my witness, I will not let people be big to me. People will occupy their right place in my life. Fear of man may be a condition of my brokenness. That's fine. But it's incompatible with the kind of faithful Christian living I want to give to the Savior. And so when I fail, I'm going to bring myself underneath the fountain of God's grace, and receive his forgiveness and ask him for his strength. God, help me to stand with Christ and not cater to the crowds. Church, could you say that this morning, that that is your prayer and your desire? I pray that you never face what the Christians in Rome faced. But if it's God's will for you that you should suffer for Christ, would you rejoice in it and stand with him no matter the cost? Let's ask God to help us this morning.